I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... I'm sick, I'm miserable, I'm withdrawing. My boyfriend, who I'm codependent on, was just carried away somewhere I don't know. I'm lonely with people I don't know, I can't speak to. It was just that moment of painful awareness. Like, wow, I've really messed my life up. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. And this podcast is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. It's uh, full of information on ways to talk to your doctor, to talk to yourself, to make sure that the, you have options when uh, being prescribed opioids. And uh, without their help, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. Dr. Matt, how are you, my friend? I'm really good. Hey, I spent some time in your hometown uh, last week. <laughs> yeah, Morgan. Yeah, I was up there for a city council meeting. Uh, I learned a couple things while Why I was in were you Morgan. there for a city. Are you on the Morgan City Council? No, but I was there because they were doing some sort of uh, plat or plat uh, finalization or something like that. Yeah. But I went there with my mom and my older brother. And so they're sitting around here, and the council goes, hey, can I get a second? And I go, oh, I got a second. <laughs> and my older brother looks back and goes, no, you you, you don't get to say second. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and don't make a motion. Just sit here and shut up. And I <laughs> was said, that okay. really hard for you to do? <laughs> yes, it was. I bet it was. Because one time they go, hey, we're going to open up uh, for public opinion. Your brother looked at you like, <laughs> no, said, man. And I was like, I got some things to say. <laughs> yeah? But they didn't let me. But everything went good. You're like, first of all, why there's why is there still not a traffic light in this town? Right. But Morgan is such a quaint, beautiful, yeah. lovely little town. So it's after great. that was all said and done, uh, my kids, I didn't have them that night. And my girlfriend was doing uh, Pilates or something. And so I was I was left to my own device. Okay. How's that relationship going? Buddy? It's awesome. Okay. Everything's good. <laughs> Just going to, to Mexico sure. in about a month. Okay. okay. Uh, and so uh, I was like, I'm hungry. And so I drove past this place called J&J. J&J's drive-in. Double yeah. J. And I was like... For the old timers, it was Steph's uh-huh. back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But I was like, I'm going to go get me a burger. Uh-huh. So the drive through line was way too long. So I parked the mom's car, got the dad bought out, yeah. and walked into J&J's and said, what do you have? And they go, well, try the Double J burger. I said, done. Let me have that. It was good, wasn't it? Yep. And while I'm there, somebody comes up and goes, are you Casey Scott, the TV guy? And I go... 
I was Casey Scott, the <laughs> I used TV to be. guy. <laughs> now I'm Casey Scott, the podcast guy. They, no, that's what we mean. We love the podcast. We love that you have Dr. Matt Woolley on there. You know he's from Morgan, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I know he's from Morgan. And so they said, uh, are you eating alone? I said, yeah. They said, would you like to join us? And I said, you don't mind? And they said, yeah, come sit down. Yeah. So I got my double J burger, came down, sat around, and heard some stories of a young Matt Woolley and oh, everything that's now. going on in Morgan. And yeah. it, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I guess why I tell you the story because this podcast is really doing some wonderful things. Yeah, uh, People are really resonating with it, and they like what we're doing. We're sharing stories, and we're showing people that recovery is possible. I was sitting at my son's high school graduation last Friday mm-hmm. uh, in the D-Event Center there at Weber State, and a lady up behind us tapped on my shoulder and said, Are you Dr. Matt? And I said, yeah, I think I said, well, not today, but I'm dad, Matt. But yeah, and she she was a listener and wanted me to tell you how much she enjoyed listening to your story and and the podcast. And so, yeah, people are definitely listening to the show. And uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, the fact that you got to spend some fun time in Morgan. That was a great place to grow up. And the people there are really, really great. I'm not surprised they invited you to eat with them. And it was a good time. Uh, but now this is where we get a little serious on the podcast or the radio show, whichever one you're listening to. Um, I'm tired of people saying people don't change. I hear that a lot. Yep. You know, and, 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 and people probably ask it to me in a question format more because people want to know if people change. But you're right. There's a lot of negativity around. Can't teach old dogs new tricks. That but kind whether of stuff. you're talking about a relationship, uh, a work situation, uh, somebody who's set in their ways, you'll often hear people excuse it as people don't change. A leopard doesn't change its spots. And to that, I go, Really? Why not go back and listen to the past two and a half years of this podcast and then tell me that people don't change? Now, I'm going to say one thing. People only change when they want to change. And that's the key thing. If you want to change, you can change your life. You can change your behavior. You can change your outlook. You can change so many things about you. But the only thing that's going to make that work is if you want to change. A lot of times people are just set in their ways. And if they if they want to go through life being grumpy, then they, that's their choice. But it is a choice. They're choosing to be grumpy. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think sometimes it's a little more complicated than that in the sense that sometimes people don't – they don't know there's another way. I mean, honestly, a lot of folks, it's what was modeled to them growing up, and it's kind of how they assume that's just their autopilot every day. But fortunately, we've had a lot of great guests on this show showing us that how sometimes an epiphany happens, something special happens that changes their point of view, changes their insight about themselves, and a whole new world of possibilities opens up to a person. And and that's where the change really takes off, I think. So I I just want to let people know that, you know, if you've got a loved one who's an addict and you've tried time and time again, and you're finally to the resolve of saying, no, they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. They're not going to change if they don't want to. Not magically, because change is hard. It takes a lot of work and takes time. What are some of the key elements that will initiate a change, if you will? Well, like if you go back through the change cycle, obviously there has to be some contemplation about it. You have to be thinking and picturing and visualizing it happening. 
And then there has to be some personal motivation. Um, we've seen, and I think this is a common story, if you're trying to change for someone else, it has to be personal. It has to be the desire. You have to feel desperate often. I remember there were times uh, in my active addiction and I was talking to my wife. And she goes, why can't you just quit? Why can't you quit for me? And or for I, the kids. Or, or the kids you know. or for your job. or all, and, and, and here's the honest truth. I tried. I tried. And I made that my motivation. I said, because I did love my wife. Uh, I, I do love her. You know, I. Uh, oh, I know. But sure. I tried. I, I said, I, I do. And you know what it did? It made me feel worse because I, di- I couldn't quit for her. Because you get in that cycle of failure, right? Where yeah. You set yourself up. Okay, it's all on me. I'm going to make this happen. And you go for a little while and then you fail and your self-esteem goes down every time you go through that cycle. Knock down a notch every time that I don't do what I say I'm going to do because I wasn't properly equipped to for the change. I swear on everything that I have that I stood above each one of my kids' beds as they stepped, looked down at them and said, you know what? Tomorrow's going to be different. Dad's not going to do this. I love you that much that I'm going to do this for you. Now, I do love them, and I and I love them with all my heart, right. and I gave it everything I could. But that wasn't the issue, was it? No, because I didn't want to quit. I didn't. It, and, 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 and I think it also speaks to the biological nature of the disease. I yeah. mean, the reality is, even if your heart is 100% set on change, you still have a biological disorder that you're having to overcome, and that takes time. And it usually takes some professional intervention. You're, this is a to, to completely turn your life around and become sober from having a serious addiction takes sort of a team effort, in my opinion. And luckily, I had an amazing team from the recovery center I went to, to you guys here on the podcast, to my family, to my friends. Uh, I'm going to leave you one short story before we get to our guest. I know sleepovers aren't a big thing here in Utah. They're not? Well, what, was that sarcasm or? No, I mean, oh. when I was a kid, we had sleepovers all the time. So, okay, I'm with you on that. I've noticed there's been, that was the common thing yeah, in the summer. Know, it was like, yeah. where were you sleeping at your friends' houses? And it is less common now. Um, I, I think, I, yeah. I have a whole thing I could yeah. walk, but I'll let you tell Last the story. night, yeah. my daughter was having a sleepover. Okay. One of her good friends. At your house? At my house. Uh-huh. And so she comes down and she goes, Dad, hey, my friend wants to sleep over. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I said, do her parents know? Yeah. Do they know it's my house? Because my first thought was, mm. there's a stigma around me. And I wonder if they know my story and they're okay with it. And she goes, yeah, Dad, they know that's your house. I said, okay, we'll go pick her up. So we get in the car, we're talking, having a good time, driving to their house, listening to some old school rap music, singing nice. each other's words. Run DMC. Yeah, it's a, uh-huh. mm-hmm. a rock around a right on time. It's tricky. Huh? Uh-huh. It's tricky. Uh, so we pull up and I turn the car off. She says, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm going to go up and meet their parents, you know, sure, and, and, and get her. No, dad, you don't have to. I said, no, I, I think I need to. We should go up there and introduce yeah, myself. Yeah, I haven't met them before. Sure. And, and, and talk to them. And they, they've been hanging out all school year. Mm-hmm. similar interests, thick as thieves, best friends, you know? And she goes, dad, this is embarrassing. I go, get out of the car. Let's go up there. But now my first thought was maybe she didn't tell him it was my house, but, oh, yeah. but I don't think she's that way. She goes, kids really don't like you to meet their friends, parents yeah. for some reason. And yeah. so she gets out and we go up there and we meet them and we talk and 
you know, exchange pleasantries and all that stuff. And you it, weren't ch- wearing this flamingo shirt that no, day. but I actually oh, had a okay. shirt that said "Fight Me" on it. Because <laughs> I just got okay, done. that might have been the the embarrassment part. Then. I just got done mowing the lawn. Yeah, and yeah. so I go up there and we're talking. And they said, very nice to meet you. I said, I'll, I'll make sure we get them up on time, and I'll get them to close to school on time as I can. And they laughed, and we said, okay, cool. And I wasn't kidding. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so we're getting there, and I'm thinking to myself, how far I've come in three years. Because when this was all down, I thought nobody was going to accept me. I thought my life was sure. going to be forever changed. Yep. And here I am. And I got to assume that they know my story. Yeah, I mean, if uh, people, I don't know if the, the average listener knows it. Most people around town recognize you, and they know in who Utah. you are in Utah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and so, and your your stories made the rounds. And and so my daughter slept over yeah. at their house, and like any parents do, you know, you hang out with them for a little bit, and you go, "So, what does your dad do for a living?" You know, and just <laughs> so you can find right. out, you know, kind of who they are and what they're about. And so, I was, I was felt so grateful as I'm driving these two kids back to my house that I'm in such a wonderful place mm-hmm. that people are accepting of me and my faults and everything about me and willing to give me a second chance. It just felt really good. It was one of those life reaffirming moments that I said, yeah. yes, I'm doing something good and life is good. I think you need to have those and sort of um, process those once in a while when you have them. To keep your motivation going for anybody in sobriety, you have to look at the, the the contrast between how life used to be and how it is now and, you know, latch on to those moments when you feel some affirmation for what, you know, positive affirmation for what you're doing. And that brings us to our guest. Her name is Jessica. And for the longest time, she didn't talk about her story. She didn't talk about her recovery. She's got an interesting story. You might have uh, seen some of it. It was all over social media a couple weeks ago. But she got hooked on heroin at a young age, got arrested at the age of 20, found her recovery only to 10 years later buy a house, move into it to find out the guy living next to her was the guy who arrested her. And now her police, kids... Police officer? Yep. Wow. Play with her their grandkids. Oh, cool. Her name is Jessica. She's going to be our guest. Stick around. More Project Recovery. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jessica Butterfield. How are you? I'm good. She's from Bird's Eye, Utah. Do you know where Bird's Eye is? Nope. I bet you don't. But it is a little town. Where? 
It's kind of by Fairview. And now people will know because I'll go Google it. So that's good. <laughs> and uh, we're so grateful that you would come and share your story. I know it took you an hour and a half by car uh, to get up here to share your story. Now, before we went to break, I teased uh, a little bit about you not sharing your story for the longest time. We'll get to that in just a second. But where does the story of Jessica begin? Where does it begin? Um I guess it begins when I was 12 years old. So when I was 12, um, that's the first time I tried marijuana. And a little bit about me. I grew up in a small town, Santa Quin, Utah. It's on the southern end of Utah County. So a small town, Utah County, Utah, born and raised, lived there my entire life, Utah County. Um, And I had a pretty normal Utah childhood, I guess you could say. I, My parents... Um, were married at a young age, and they had me and my two older brothers, and I was raised kind of LDS. You know, we were the typical LDS Just family. Just three of you, though, kids? Just three of us, So yeah. that's a little unusual for, for Utah and Utah County, mm-hmm. right? Only three kids. But you know what's interesting is if you were born and raised in Utah— you were all kind of LDS. I mean, for for the longest part. I mean, that was just it was the right. predominant when you, religion. When you were a kid, you ended up going to church events once in a while. I would go every scouts. year on my birthday because they gave you stuff. Yeah, they <laughs> did. Classic. And, and then I'd go to scouts, and, and right. you know, and a lot of that morphed into young men and young women. The culture, right? Yeah. There's the cultural aspect. And so, when you say so. you were kind of LDS, that I mean, there was yeah, just raised in that small town of Utah, and everybody's LDS, and Everybody knew everybody. Like my entire family, aunts and uncles were within a six block radius. They you say know. a stone's throw. Yeah, pretty much. That <laughs> sounds like a family compound, right? Like, uh, but that for for listeners outside of Utah, they may not realize that's pretty common, especially in the more rural parts of Utah, where families kind of stick around, and yeah. pretty soon you'll have like, well, those streets over there, all the Carter family, and you know that you know, so the families kind of congregate. So, how does a young Jessica at the age of twelve find marijuana in such a small, small town? Well, I think this is what's interesting because a lot of people would think growing up in a small town in Utah County, Utah, it's not going to be there. But it was even when I was young. And Most you know, people probably think of Footloose. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that kind of... Yeah, so that was actually... filmed in the high school I went to in Payson. Okay. So the town right next to me. Go. There you go. Yeah. And so you say it was kind of prevalent. I wouldn't say it was prevalent, but it was there. And at 12 years old, just the people I was hanging around, I mean, it was in the middle school I was going to, and some friends got it from a boyfriend. So it was in the school, and it was a pretty small school. I don't know if I chose just the wrong crowd or what. Um, But at 12 years old, I tried marijuana for the first time, and I tried alcohol. I think I tried a cigarette, too. Um, And I didn't do it very often from ages 12 to 15. It was kind of here and there, you know, kind of the cool thing. You'd go to sleepovers. You guys were talking about sleepovers. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no wonder we don't allow sleepovers because that's where I tried alcohol and marijuana for the first time. (laughs) Okay, Uh, For the the girl who stayed at my house, there was no alcohol. There was no marijuana. uh, There was copious amounts of ice cream. Uh, Okay. That is the Utah drug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At, at sleepovers I went to, it was mainly getting it from like the parents' liquor cabinets and stuff like that, which I feel like that's a really common story. Um, so trying it at sleepovers and it wasn't, yeah, something I did very often, but I had tried it and it was, it's kind of interesting looking back because growing up LDS, you're always taught that drugs are bad. Alcohol is bad. We don't do that. Like and I knew for that. Some listeners, that's the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's our values is you don't do drugs or alcohol. So my parents didn't drink. My parents didn't do drugs. I didn't grow up in that environment. But what happened was I 
went to these sleepovers and I tried it because everybody else was and I wanted to be cool. I wanted to fit in, maybe a little curious. And when I did do it for the first time, I was like, wow, I didn't die. Nothing bad happened. Like, why is this such a big deal? I was always told drugs are bad. I was never told why. And so, you know, when I tried it and nothing happened, I thought, oh, this is okay. It's actually kind of fun. So I kept doing it here and there throughout the years. Um, and then some things happened. My parents separated at 14, got divorced at 15. And I think I was a very anxious child. I, I was always kind of anxious. I didn't know it at the time, um, but kind of had those tendencies. And I entered into relationships pretty young, you know, 15, had a boyfriend that I was in love. But looking back, I was very codependent at an early age. And then... Because of some issues with the divorce and having anxiety and kind of falling into these negative coping habits, um, by 16, I started using pills. 16 and a half, I started using heroin. Okay, now you're going over this really, really quick. Okay. <laughs> uh, so when you first tried uh, the pills, were they prescribed to you because of your anxiousness or were you seeking them as a way to kind of self-medicate your anxiousness? Um, I guess I tried them mainly because I was drinking and smoking marijuana and hanging out with that party crowd and other people were doing pills and I hung out with a lot of like older people. And so, yeah, why not? Like, like I said, I had tried marijuana and it didn't kill me. It didn't seem that bad. So why not try a pill? I just fell into that cycle of trying things. And you describe yourself as anxious. One of the things we've noticed on this show and, and I think we know kind of in the clinical world is, you know, a lot of times people don't even realize they're anxious because it's so natural. It's an inborn tendency that they have. So they're just tuned a little bit higher, mm-hmm. and, and but they f- they feel kind of miserable, and they, they might look at their friends and think, oh, I don't think my friends feel the way I feel. But then they try alcohol, and then they try weed or something, and all of a sudden, whew, you know, they have this instant relief that's so enticing to repeat. Did you ever feel a release from your anxiety like that as a kid? Not as a kid, but that's exactly how it was when I tried a pill. Like the alcohol and marijuana, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I did like drinking, and I do consider myself a recovering alcoholic, but marijuana was never my thing. I mean, I did it, but I I really didn't like it. I got really paranoid. It's almost like it made it worse for me, and it it just wasn't my thing. That's called a paradoxical reaction. That's what it's called. Is that what it is? Not uncommon. Uh, people have that paranoid response sometimes. He took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, (laughs) because I've never known that, and I was always like, why is people like so calm, and I'm over here freaking out every time I smoke marijuana? That might have had something to do with your level of anxiety, Hmm. Uh, but it's uh, there are various reasons why, but people can have that. It's called an opposite or paradoxical reaction, and and it's a miserable experience if you're smoking, I'm sure you know. Okay, yeah. And you have that. But you said you tried pills, and... You finally found relief from that anxiousness? It was the relief. The first time I took a pill, it was like this deep breath of air. Like I could breathe for the first time and it was just such a good feeling. And I I didn't experience that before because I think I'd always lived with this level of anxiety and I wasn't aware of it. So taking that first pill, it was just like, wow. What I a felt descriptive calm. way. Yeah. For to say that, a deep breath of air. That's really powerful. Because I and the reason I like to sort of come back to this sometimes with guests is I want people to know, like, there's a reason why people get hooked on something like alcohol or drugs at a young age. Why it grabs you. Yeah, it's not just from partying. It sounds to me like if you 
didn't have the anxiety that you, if you had no anxiety as a kid growing up, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have hooked you at that point in your life. But it, I think it's that relief from your anxiety that's so powerful that a person, I could just see it in your face when you're remembering. It's like, ah, oh, this is what life could be like. And so that's a, that's a tempting thing. I mean, we can't blame people for wanting to feel free of that anxiety. It's a, it's a heavy load to constantly carry around oh, day yeah. after day. Miserable. So when you're in the small town and you first try pills, are pills pretty prevalent? I mean, I mean, are, are they easily to obtain? Yeah, they were. I look back and I've talked to other people from high school that I hung out with a little bit. And like one other person was like, I can't believe how accessible it was to us as kids. At 16 years old, I was getting pills from a lot of adults because there were a lot of adults who got the prescriptions and they would sell us to us kids and make money and then go buy harder drugs. I would get them from parents of friends. I mean, they were everywhere. Once I entered that world and I I was in that place like they were so easy to find and it happened so fast like so fast Did you I find yourself to... snooping through people's medicine cabinets and stuff like that i didn't have to because it was okay. always a phone call away or it was always given to me at parties it was just everywhere. everywhere wow everywhere so when you try your first pill how quick are you starting to look for them i mean was it one of those things because it sounded like with marijuana and alcohol from the age of 12 to 15 it was an occasional sporadic whenever it was there cool let's do it if not no big deal but it sounds like you fell in love with pills the first time so was it like where can i get more It happened so fast. And so from the time I tried my first pill to the first time I tried heroin was six months. And I remember it started with Percocet, lower tabs, went to Oxycontin. And before I knew it, I was like snorting them before school because I got dependent on it so fast. Um, It it just like it happened so fast. Walk me through the first time you try heroin. Like like the mindset, because I we've had people in here before, and there's there, there's a conversation that's happening inside of your head, and you know because you know for a lot of people it's like that's one thing that I wasn't gonna do I wasn't gonna do pills or I was gonna do you know heroin I wasn't gonna do needles mm-hmm. and so if to go from pills to heroin what was the conversation like between your ears? It's interesting talking about this, and I say this quite often, that nobody wakes up and thinks, hey, I want to be a drug addict. Like, that sounds fun. You know, like you said, there's a reason people tend to use pills and turn to heroin. And what it looked like for me was I started using pills, and as we've said, I found this this release, right, this relief from this anxiety that I wasn't even where I was having. And there was a part of me that knew I shouldn't do it because there was a time, I think it was like two weeks, I went without pills. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a step back. I shouldn't do this. I know it's wrong. And I didn't do pills for two weeks. And then I took a pill. And I remember this day so vividly. I was with a friend and I was high because I had took some pills. And I said, why did I ever quit doing this? Like, I feel so good. I'm so happy. I'm so calm. Like, life is good. Why wouldn't I do this? And I kept doing it. Um, But eventually... It kind of got hard to find pills, like finding money to buy the pills. And I started experiencing withdrawals. And at the time, I didn't know I was an addict. I didn't know I was addicted to pills. I'm like, why do I feel so sick? And of course, being in that realm and talking to other people, I'm like, oh, I don't feel good. Like, I'm really sick. I can't find any pills. It's really dry right now. And being around the people I was, um, it was offered to me like, hey, I got some, some black, some heroin, and it will take your withdrawals away. It will make you feel better. And I had always said, me and my friends always said, we'll never do heroin, we'll never do meth. Like, that's the bad stuff. You know, we can do pills and smoke marijuana. That's okay, but I'm not going to do the hardcore stuff. But 
I found myself in that desperation because I was having these really physical withdrawals, feeling like crap, and wasn't and it interesting it. that they sold it to you as a medicine? This will help with your withdrawals. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, that's really how it, it gets a hold of you because that's. I mean, they didn't tell you, "Hey, this is heroin, and this is going to ruin your life." This will help you with your withdrawals. This will make you feel better. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it appeals to that desperation you were probably feeling at and the time. The sad part is, I mean, it was given to me by other kids who were around my age. And looking back, we were all just a bunch of lost kids in addictions. And honestly, like. They thought they were helping me out. Like, hey, girl, I'll help you out. You don't got to be sick. Like, here's some heroin, you know. It's not like they were doing it with this evil intent to get her addicted to heroin. They just thought they were helping a friend out. Yeah, I think one of the things that's striking that you just said is, I didn't know I was an addict. I didn't know what was going on with me. And I think at those ages, that's so common when when you don't know, you don't think beyond the moment. Typically, the adolescent mindset's very much in the here and now and into yourself and your own feelings. And so it's... Not that uncommon. I mean, I think an adult listening to that might be like, oh, how could they not know? But it's like, well, you don't know at that age. You're just playing around, having fun. And like you said, kind of a bunch of lost kids experimenting with drugs and starting, you know, addictive behaviors and not really knowing what you're getting into. And I think that's a difference between then and now. There's so much more public propaganda to to tell people about pills and things like that. Um, you know, the sponsor of this show, that's what they're all about is helping people raise their awareness. But yeah, I, I can totally see that. You know, I talk to other teenagers on a regular basis that struggle with the same level of insight. They don't realize mm-hmm. the repercussions, potential consequences of what they're doing. So you try heroin for the first time. And it, like at any point during this, if you don't want to answer the question, you, you just say, I don't feel comfortable saying that. Okay. But do you do you go to the needle first or I mean, how does that work? I mean, because you're already doing something that you said you weren't going to do. And, you know, the justification for someone to be, well, I'm not going to shoot it, you know, because there's I mean, you can do drugs. You can smoke it. You can sniff it. You can inject it. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. So I guess it was a little back and forth in the beginning, the beginning for like two weeks probably because, you know, I still had this idea that heroin was bad. It was okay to do the Oxycontin and man, I was such a bad person in addiction. I had a boyfriend and we did pills together, but he didn't know I did heroin. I was doing heroin behind his back. Um, So I'd go get high with him and would do pills and cocaine and stuff. And then I'd like go hide in the bathroom and do heroin behind his back because he thought that was bad. But it was okay to do pills. But I was kind of back and forth. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did everything. At this point, I was doing a lot of drugs. Anything. A lot of drugs. Um, But it's not like I tried it once and immediately went to it. I was kind of back and forth with the pills. But, of course, it was like heroin was cheaper and a lot more potent. So probably within a month, I was more straight heroin. And... Um, Were you smoking it? I was smoking it. So I actually have never used a needle. I smoked it my entire addiction. I watched everyone around me shoot up, but it always scared me. So So you say within six months of your first pills, it escalated to heroin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at that point, uh, heroin's got a hold of you. What does life look like for you right then? I mean, where are your parents? Where What is going on in kind of outside of your bubble? So I'm always a little reluctant to talk about my parents because I really don't want to hurt them. But And as I've come into recovery, as I've gained a lot of insight and looked back, I now understand my, cho- 
my choices were that. They were my choices. And I accept my addiction with full responsibility. Um, but that takes a lot of time. As a teenager in those years at that spot, um, my parents were divorced. My dad was kind of going through his own depression thing at that point. My mom was kind of going through her own stuff. So they weren't very um, active in my life. They weren't really there. I think they knew there were issues. They didn't know the severity of it. They didn't know... Um, how how bad it had gotten, you know. But my family life kind of fell apart, and I guess that was a factor that played into um, my leading to addiction, you know, because I had went from this really, like, strong family, really great childhood to my parents getting divorced and all kind of dissolving, um, and that's probably why I fell into this lifestyle because it was fun. I had a lot of friends. You feel this group. You feel this connection and acceptance, and so that was one of the factors that led to my addiction. It sounds like uh, your whole family was in survival mode from your mom to your mm -hmm. dad to your brothers. And you guys were all just trying to get through. Yeah. And this is the way you found your way. And unfortunately, it was through heroin. Yeah. And so uh, you're now hanging with heroin. Uh, is it a daily occurrence? A daily occurrence. It happened so fast. And as I said, I was kind of hiding it from my boyfriend. Eventually, he found out. Um, we broke up, and I, I just kept going with the wrong crowd, the wrong people, doing heroin. And I admitted it to one friend at lunch one day. I said, hey, I've been using heroin. And he was like, oh, how long have you been doing it? I'm like, I don't know, a while. He's like, well, you're addicted to it. I said, no, I'm not hooked on it. Like, I could quit anytime I want. He's like, no, you're hooked on it. Like, try and go without it. And I tried to go without it. And the withdrawals were so... Horrible, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm addicted to heroin!" <laughs> like I had that realization, but um, it, it didn't quit. I and how stop. old are you at this point? I'm, I don't know exactly. Probably like around sixteen and a half, seventeen, probably seventeen ish. What's that like to be sixteen and have that inner dialogue? I'm addicted to heroin. It was just, I mean. Like I said, I never wanted to be a drug addict. I never at one point woke up and thought, I'm going to go use heroin and get addicted because that sounds like a great life to live, you know. I just found myself in this situation, but I was already so deep, already so scared, already so addicted and reliant to use this drug to cope with life that, I mean, I was aware of it, but I wasn't ready to address it. So I just kept using and I kept finding myself in worse spots. And I was going to Salt Lake every single day to buy drugs. And I mean, it's surprising how prevalent it is in Utah County. I was going with other people my age and we would go up there every single day to buy a bunch of heroin and come back to Utah County and use it and sell it. And I just fell into that lifestyle very quickly. I want to ask you real quick about when you decided uh, your friend at lunch at school said you're addicted to heroin you said no and you tried to stop and you said it was so horrible so you went back to it mm -hmm. did that send you deeper into your addiction because at that point now you know you're addicted so your mindset's changed because at first you thought you were just flirting with it dancing or whatever you thought but now you proved to yourself that you are addicted so did, does that dive you deeper into the world I think so. I think I just fell into that cycle of like, okay, I can get clean next week. I'll get clean next month. I'll next do week's it, always you know. the best to tomorrow. Start. I'll start oh, yeah. tomorrow. I mean, that, I, I don't know how many times I said tomorrow's going to be a new day. And it ended up being the same old day. Very I mean, for, for, yeah. for forever. And addicts do that. Like, we would all sit around, be doing our drugs and thinking, yeah, guys, we're going to get clean next week because we're inhaling and injecting drugs. <laughs> mm. 
But let's not do it next week because Cinco de Mayo is on a Monday, and that's always a fun time. So the week after that, (laughs) that's when we're doing it. But I mean, you would—I mean, you would look for the the simplest reason to not run into Memorial Day, and then yeah, Yeah. I mean, there's always—I mean, yeah, then there's Fourth of July. I mean, it's crazy. We're going to find out how it gets really out of control for you in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, more importantly, recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jessica Butterfield. We just heard her beginning story of how she got into heroin. You're at 16 and a half. You realize you're a full-blown addict, and you said life gets really chaotic. I want to ask you a question. Because okay. here, I'm trying to keep in mind that you're 16, 17, driving up to the big city of Salt Lake to, to buy drugs, sometimes enough drugs to go back and sell and use. Was that ever a scary experience? Because my understanding is the folks you buy heroin from are not always the salt of the earth. What was that like to be a 16, 17-year-old? I'm almost 50. I think I'd be scared And for our viewers, you're a petite, beautiful, blonde, young girl. And so, I mean, that's probably not going well for you. Well, I hung out with a lot of guys at that age, so I was always... With guys. Well, there was a couple times me and my other skinny blonde friend went by ourselves because she knew the drug dealers pretty well. But there were six scary situations, but I was in such an addict state of mind that I was like, oh, I'm so cool. You know, like I got the hookup. I can go get it for cheaper up there and sell it down here. And I can go all over Utah partying and know people. Like at the time, I had this very. You felt, felt invincible, maybe. Yeah, I like, had such I'm a cool. big ego. Yeah. Sucked into the lifestyle. Yeah. Because there is a lifestyle. And, and, and for people who don't know, that can be addictive as well, is being oh, in sure. that lifestyle. Yeah. Being in those moments where you feel alive, you're doing mm-hmm. something that you shouldn't be doing, and then you come back to your small town and you're the hero because you went into the big city and, and got this stuff. And I mean, th- th- that whole lifestyle must have been somewhat appealing to you guys at such a young age. Yeah, it was. It was a total lifestyle so So you're coming back and at this point are you getting in any trouble with the law no but at this point so around 17 my parents did finally realize what was going on and at that point I was using with my older brother we didn't start using together but we each found addiction and once we found we were both using of course we were going to use together Um, but my parents eventually found out and at one point, they tried to put us in an outpatient program with Suboxone and therapy, that kind of stuff. Um, I never got in trouble with the law, but my parents found out. So it was like, oh, time's up. I got to do something about it. And, and they tried to help us, but that didn't work out for very long. How about school during that time? I went to a little bit of high school, but most of the time... I was just getting high and leaving, and then I went to an alternative high school for the kids that are kind of like troublemakers, you know. But that was the point where I was snorting cocaine and pills before class, and eventually I just dropped out. And I did get my GED eventually, but I dropped out of high school, and I was kind of functional. I had jobs here and there, and I tried to, like, support my habit. and The legal um, way. The legal way, kind of. (laughs) For a time. For a time. So I was somewhat functional, but I didn't have the normal high school experience. I didn't go to school. I never went to prom. I never went well, to the games. Well, that addiction becomes all-encompassing. And so high school is a lot to manage. You know, we're at this time of year where a lot of kids are graduating from high school. And that is a big accomplishment because that's a lot of 
social stress and emotional stress and academic mm-hmm. stress. There's a lot going on. And my experience is people who start using heavily in high school rarely have a normal high school experience because they can't just man they can't manage both. Yeah. And I feel like I kind of skipped that because a lot of the people I were dating and hanging out with, they were older and out of high school. And I thought that was the cool place to be, the cool people to hang out with, you know, so I just didn't want anything to do with high school or people my age, really. Looking back, do you do you miss it? Sometimes I feel bad and I felt embarrassed for a really long time because you always get the question, oh, what year did you graduate or where did you graduate from? And I'd always kind of like fib a little bit and be like, oh, I graduated in 2009, even though I didn't really, I got a GED. I was always very ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't even graduate high school. And so for a while, I had this regret and guilt and shame about that, but not anymore. So often on this podcast, uh, there become there, there's a rock bottom mm-hmm. where people hit it to where they've got a choice. Either they keep going or they change their life. What does your rock bottom look like? Well, a few things happened. After my parents put us in the outpatient program, I did attend therapy for a time. I tried a little bit of 12-step meetings because I had to get my paper signed to remain in the program. Eventually, failed out of that program because I failed too many drug tests. Um, and then I continued using heroin and pills. I tried meth a few times. I was doing cocaine, ecstasy, drinking, just living this crazy, wild lifestyle. And there were a couple times in there, like, I, I mean, I wanted to get clean. I didn't want to be an addict. I didn't want to, but I could never do it. And I mean, I was in and out of like really toxic relationships. At 18, as you mentioned in the beginning, I was arrested. I spent a night in jail. And was withdrawing and miserable. The first thing I did when I got out was went and bought more heroin. What did you get arrested for? So I got arrested for illegally changing lanes. And I had a couple of warrants for my arrest. And he charged me for like two cigarettes. What a jerk. Because <laughs> you were under 18. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't drug related, but I was on my way to purchase heroin. So if he had pulled me over on my way back, I would have had heroin on me. Um, But I spent the night withdrawing in jail from heroin, got out, went and bought some more and used. And I just continued in this cycle for the next few years. And then when I was 20, I was just probably at my worst point, just using it so Are you living in your parents' home still at this point? So at that point, I was living with my dad and I had a boyfriend um, and, and, I, and I was at his place a lot, but I guess it hit rock bottom. It was December. It would have been 2010. And we were just so drugged out, laying in his basement in his room for days, missed Christmas, didn't talk to my family, you know, wasn't even showering, like just totally strung out, you know, at a really low place. And we both wanted to get clean And my boyfriend at the time was Hispanic, and he had family in Mexico, and we decided it would be a great idea to go down to Mexico and get clean, because if we got away geographically, we could get clean, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, they don't have drugs in Mexico. (laughs) No, because they're bringing them all here. Uh, But but, but that is probably one of the things that people think all the time uh, when you're thinking about sobriety, is taking them out of their current environment. Right. And... I think that's naive because it, it's helpful, but not sufficient, right? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, an addict will find anywhere, yeah, anywhere you go, anywhere you can find them. If you can you, find it in Santa Quin, Utah. You can find it in Mexico. You can find it anywhere. Yeah. So, but I get that. I mean, it's sort of a desperation, right? Here, here you are, it's you contemplation. guys. Yeah, and and you're contemplating what can I do? I, yeah, and you kind of desperately think, well, if I just wasn't here, 
then maybe I, things would be different. And there's a little element of truth to that. I think there's a reason that we, you know, take people in different places. But yeah, probably kind of a naive hope as a kid. How did that end up um, down in Mexico? Well, so we went down there with his family and I didn't have a passport or anything. I heard you can take your driver's license and birth certificate and that's enough. And our plans were to wait in Arizona for a time until I did get a passport and then go into Mexico with his parents. Anyways, um, we were both these struggling heroin addicts. We both wanted to get clean. His family kind of knew the situation and they were a very nice, very kind family. Um, and, and he had lied to me because he said that he told them what was going on, but he had actually just told them that he was addicted and I was not. So they didn't know I was going to be this withdrawing heroin addict down at their house too. Long story short, we go into Mexico. I'm high on the way. Um, I, I wake up, we're in Mexico. And I'm like, why are we in Mexico? And he said, I didn't want to tell you because I knew you wouldn't come if we were going straight into Mexico and you don't have a passport. We're there for a few days. I'm sick, miserable, withdrawing. So is he. At one point, we take his mom's car to go on the streets of this border town in Mexico to find heroin, totally get ripped off, totally have this crazy experience where I'm like, I'm getting killed. He's been kidnapped. I don't know what's going on. Scared the crap out of me. Eventually, his family loaded him in a truck and took him to some rehab over in Baja, Mexico, and my family drove down to pick me up. And that was my rock bottom. I was in Mexico with this very kind family, but I didn't speak Spanish and I couldn't really communicate, but um, they were very kind to me. And his mom and aunt took me back over the border to meet my mom, who still didn't know I was in Mexico at the time. She thought I was in Arizona. Um and I'm sick, I'm miserable, I'm withdrawing. My boyfriend, who I'm codependent on, was just carried away somewhere I don't know. I'm lonely with people I don't know, I can't speak to. And um, it was just that moment of painful awareness. Like, wow, I've really messed my life up. Like, wow, I've really ruined my relationships with my family. Like, what am I? I'm a piece of crap. I have nothing in my life. I have no one. I'm lost. I'm lonely. I'm scared. I remember like waiting in the backseat of the car in the border. Like it's four hours to get back in America. And I'm this little white girl with this hat on. <laughs> and we pull up to the border and I hand out my driver's license and birth certificate. And the border patrol officer like looks in there and he's like, can you step out? And he's like, why are you here? And I said, I came here with my boyfriend and I just want to go home. And I started crying and he's like go back and don't ever come back. And eventually we meet my mom and brother. They came down to pick me up and they drive me home. And I pretty much locked myself in my room for the next week. My family was finally at a place where they knew they had to help me and they kept an eye on me. I didn't leave until the next week when I went to a 12-step meeting sponsored through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Addiction Recovery Program, and that's where my recovery began. And that was 10 years ago. Wow. What was your, um, I mean, what was your parents' response to bringing you home from Mexico? How did they, how did they respond to you? They knew I was going, and my dad, I love my dad. He's the kindest man, such a good father, but a huge enabler. Um, they didn't want me to go, and I was told when I got home that he paced the house the entire time and was gone and was worried sick, and they were both really worried. Um, and my mom 
drove all the way down there. They tried to get me plane tickets, but they just decided to come down and pick me up. But um, I think it kind of hit them too. Like, oh my gosh, my daughter's gone somewhere. Like, what if I don't see her again? And they just knew they needed to help me. So So they come back. You lock yourself in the room. Uh, When you finally open the door, you walk into a 12-step program for Mm -hmm. the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. And what is your thoughts going into this? Were you ready for a change? Uh, We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Change only happens if you want it. Did you want the change? I think about recovery with three A's. And when you talk about wanting change, I think that takes incredible awareness. We have to first become aware of our situation. And I had been because I was in this really low place. When we hit our rock bottoms, we become so aware of what we've done. Painfully. Yeah, painfully aware of our situations, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was aware, um, but I was in such a depression because that awareness brings so much guilt. That's the hard part about detox and that's possibly harder than the physical withdrawals is the awareness of what you've done the guilt the shame the remorse the sorrow like wow i really did all those things because when you get clean when you quit that drink when you quit that heroin the fog is lifted and you can see clearly what you've done and i saw clearly what i had done and i had just this depression like why do i even want to live like i thought there was no hope i was walking into this meeting because i was desperate for help because i was just desperate. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the Mormon church. I didn't really want anything to do with it, but I was desperate for help and I knew I had to do something. So it was an act of desperation to walk into that meeting. And so I'm going to ask you this because it happens to me now. And I've, I mean, I don't have 10 years like you do. I have close to three, but I'll be sitting there everything will good. And then all of a sudden something will sneak into my brain of something that I did, something I said, something bad. And It'll, it'll bring me to my knees. And I go, oh, I'd forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. But here it is, a subtle reminder of the things that I had done. And, and, and I have to process it. And so I think you're 100% right when, you know, the, the, the physical withdrawals from the substance is painful. But when that fog is lifted and you're there and everything you've done is now presented to you, that's a lot to – lot to handle. Yeah. And I was talking about three A's because this is how I categorize it in my mind. There's first awareness. There's that awareness. But next there has to be acceptance. And this is a huge part because we can either accept what we've done. We can take accountability and we can accept that our choices cause certain actions um, or we can't. And if I didn't accept it. I probably would have turned around and used, but I decided to accept that these were my choices and actions and they have negative consequences. And then after that, we have to take the action and whatever that looks like. For me, it was 12-step meetings. For you, it might have been rehab, but we have to have awareness, acceptance, and action. I love it. Have you ever heard of that before? I have, but that's a great way. I don't think we've ever talked about it that way on the show. And I think that's a great way to help a person remember is the AAA you know, and it does end in action. I think a lot of times people get into, you know, the first or maybe even the second A, but the third A makes it hard. How did you stay active in, you know, because some, I mean, where'd you find your motivation? Well, as I said, I walked into that meeting, not being a believer. I didn't have a relationship with God. Didn't know if I believed in God at that point in my life. But as I said, I was desperate for help. And I did have some really cool spiritual experiences. But I think what happened was once I started 
working the steps in my life, once I really had humility, accepted it, worked the serenity prayer and, and the steps, I started seeing some change in my life, like real change. And I don't know, it just gave me motivation to keep going. And I kind of had to white knuckle it sometimes. Sometimes I had to go to a meeting every single day of the week because I really wanted to go use, but I just, I stuck through it. And and there were many factors. It's not like it was one thing. It's not like I had this incredible willpower. My family completely cut me off. I had no vehicle. I had no money. I had no cell phone. My boyfriend, who was a huge part of it, was gone for a time in rehab in Mexico. So it was like a lot of factors that helped me gain that sobriety and recovery. But along the way, you meet a young man, a bald, beautiful young man. <laughs> he wasn't bald at the time. Because off air, you were it telling was, us, I've always been attracted to bald men. It was Charlie Brown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My husband is a beautiful, bald man. <laughs> yeah. But you, you meet him. So I met my husband and I was about a year clean. So within this first year, I started going to 12-step meetings. I started having this relationship with God, decided I believed this religion, started attending church, um, completely changed my life, quit associating with anybody I knew in addiction, which was really hard because I did have some good friends I had grown up with from a young age that I really loved and cared about, but I knew I could not talk to them at all. So I changed my friend group. Um, Were you seeing any of them struggle with addiction? They all did. They all did. And there kind of was like, I don't know if it's complications, but my brother is an addict. He's a recovering addict right now. Um, But there were times like he was clean when I was getting sober and detoxing. And then like later on when I was clean, he relapsed. So I was still seeing addiction in my life because my brother was still dealing with it and struggling with it. Um, but, But I wasn't associating with the friends I used to. So anyways, eventually I meet this guy at a bonfire (laughs) and, you know, we went on some dates and stuff. Is that a normal thing down in Santa Quinn, bonfires? That's so normal. Haven't you been to a bonfire? (laughs) I don't think so. Are they anything like a fireside? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do have firesides at the fire. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. So you meet this guy, you go on a couple of dates. Does he know your history? No. Not in the beginning. So we're dating, and then after, I don't know, probably a month, we make it official. And this guy, I mean, I met him. It was like a church-type activity with Uh people from the young single adults ward I was attending at the time. And some of them, I'm sure, probably had an idea of my history. I mean, we grew up in the same town, right? But he was from a different area. So when we decided to make it official, I thought, I really... Like, I have to tell this guy, right? He deserves to know I'm a recovering heroin addict. And at the time, I don't think you would look at me and think, oh, like, she's a drug addict or whatever. No. So I don't think he had any idea. And he dropped me off at my mom's house. We sit down on the steps. And I was like, you know, I I need to talk to you. And he thought I was going to break up with him. And I just went on to tell him I'm a recovering drug addict. I've been clean a year. I've done a lot of crappy stuff. I've tried pretty much every drug out there and drank a lot. Um, and he was just happy I didn't break up with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good man right there. So, yeah. And then eight months later, we got married. And, yeah. You have three kids now? Now we've been married almost nine years with three kids. What was the name of the officer that arrested you when you were 18? Spencer Cannon. And then uh, you have three kids, and all of a sudden you guys buy a house. And who's your neighbor? 
Spencer Cannon. How it worked out was, so I've been married for nine years. I have three kids, have this husband, this good marriage. And we moved to Birdseye, this little town. And actually, he's the one that moved in next to us. Okay. And and I met him and his wife. And I was excited that we had a sheriff up there, actually, because we get some sketchy people up there driving around. <laughs> in bird's eye? Come on. I'm serious. Like, people come up there it's to do drugs. It's called bird's eye. <laughs> Anyways. It sounds like vegetables. It's called bird's eye, not yeah. a heroin needle. Um. Anyways, I met him and his wife, and I'm like, oh, they're really nice people and stuff. And I didn't think anything of it. I'd kind of forgot about being arrested at that point, you know. And one day I was at my mom's house and she found my booking papers and I was looking at them thinking it was hilarious, seeing my mugshot and stuff. And it said, arresting officer Spencer Cannon. And I was like, oh my gosh, did my neighbor arrest me? And so my... <laughs> so you didn't recognize him at first? No. Uh, as the officer? No. Yeah. No. And my husband told him at church, he's like, hey, I think you arrested my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the best conversation to have at a church. I think Hilarious. your husband arrested my wife. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it turns out that when I was 18 on my way to buy heroin, this guy arrested me. And nine years later, he's my neighbor and good friend. Did he remember the incident once you, once you spoke to him about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. He can remember it now, but mm-hmm. he didn't recognize me at first. Well, so. you, you might be on a long list of people he arrested over the years, but that's yeah. just so ironic that you guys would um, live next to each other after that. Yeah. I told him, I was like, I was so shocked, and I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was so funny, but then I thought, you know, maybe it's not so crazy. crazy. You've probably arrested a lot of people in your career. <laughs> But so, I mean, isn't it amazing when you think about your life uh, to where you think your boyfriend's kidnapped? You don't know if you're going to be able to get back across the Mexico border um, to ending up here on a podcast, living next to the guy who arrested you. uh, And you're now got 10 years of sobriety underneath your belt. And so when people say people don't change, people change. Look at Jessica right here. Um, before we let you go, I want to understand your reasoning, why you chose to share your story now and why you kept it secret for so many years prior. I didn't talk about my experience with addiction and recovery for a long time because I did enter the LDS religion, you know, and fell into that lifestyle, which is really great. And we have really great communities and a lot of support, but there is a big stigma. And I think there is a big stigma that needs to be addressed here in Utah. And I think we're kind of breaking out of it. I, I see a huge change from even three years ago to now. Um, but I didn't talk about it because I was scared if people knew if I said, hey, I'm a recovering heroin addict, that would just scare people, right? Like I was a young woman's leader. I was in the Relief Society presidency. And I was always scared people would look at me differently. And I never wanted to be defined as an addict because it was such a negative thing. Um, But I decided to talk about it because I thought I need to help people. There is a need out there. And I need to show people that change is possible. Your past does not define you. And something that's really been amazing to me as I've opened up and shared this story is it's really helped me personally because although for many years in recovery I was living this life, I, I was this good housewife, this good mom, really involved with my community, really involved with my church callings and stuff like that. Not being open caused a sense of isolation, and I had been through this. Well, I to me it was a terrible addiction. It took me to these really low points in life, and I experienced this like incredible transformation. 
Um, but not sharing that, there was always this thought in the back of my mind, like, but if people really knew me, would they like me? If people really knew me, would they accept me? I always had this doubt. And that really caused a lot of harm in my mental health. I think it caused a lot of anxiety and depression by not being open and honest and authentic. Um, but when I decided to come out and share my story and be open about it and talk about this addiction and talk about recovery, it's really allowed me to connect deeper with those people, even in my own community, even in my own neighborhood. And it's really helped me with my mental health. So I'm just grateful that I can share my story and hopefully help other people see that recovery is possible and hopefully show others change is possible. And once an addict, you're not always an addict. You're not always going to be a crappy person, you know? It's a big leap of faith, though, to take, right? Because, you know, I think it's very reasonable to wonder, will I be rejected? Will people see me differently? Um, will I be judged if I come out and, and really open up about all of who I am? But the alternative, like you were saying, holding that in, that imply if you don't know that you can do that, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening right now that might say that applies to them, you're also saying you don't know if you accept yourself mm-hmm. fully, right? So you're harboring this this real ill will towards yourself or negativity or at least lack of full authenticity in who you are. And so it's a huge leap of faith, but it's also like um, a relief because mm-hmm. you're accepting yourself. Um, how has that been? How have people responded like... You, you went from one small town in life to another small town in life. Being a guy from a small town, I can tell you everybody knows what you're up to, or at least they think they do. There's a lot of gossiping and talking that can happen in a small town. Um, what's that been like? I've had such an amazing response, and I'm so humbled and reminded of how much addiction affects people. Because even people, I have a little branch where I live. It's not a. It's not even a ward. It's a branch because we have, you know, a community small congregation. Yeah. <laughs> Even there, people I, I would think have nothing to do with addiction have reached out to me and been like, oh, I have a grandson or a granddaughter or a child who struggles with addiction. I've been humbled because so many people are affected by it. And I'm sure there are people that say rude things behind my back. I don't know. I don't really care. What I do know is a lot of people are affected by it and a lot of people need hope right now because it affects everyone, not just the user. It affects the family members, the grandparents, the parents, the community, the brothers and sisters. It affects everyone, you know. Think about this, Casey. Think about if you were a parent or a grandparent of someone who was in active addiction with heroin or something like that and you met her mm-hmm. and you saw how wonderful her life is, right? Now, wouldn't that be inspiring to you? It would be amazing. Yeah. You know, they say you never judge a book by its cover. And if we were going to judge your book, I mean, it it doesn't say addiction. It doesn't say the things, you know. And so that just goes to show you that addiction does not discriminate. And it truly is a family disease. And uh, I am so grateful that you were willing to come and share your story. It was so insightful, so well-spoken. And I, th- I think it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. And if people want to find out more about your journey and what's going on, you created a podcast as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's really how I opened up about my story because I knew I wanted to share with people. So I started one uh, at the beginning of 2020. It was Mountain Mama Podcast, but I've actually just rebranded it into The Hope Addiction because I'm always about giving people hope. And I have a co-host, Kelly Thompson, who's a fellow recovering addict, and I'm excited to do that and just share with others this message that there is hope. And they can find that wherever they get podcasts? Yes. 
I cool. love it. Any takeaways, Dr. Matt? Oh, so many takeaways. But I think the main one is just thank you for being an inspiration to other people by taking that leap of faith and opening up because you certainly could have tried to keep that private. No one would ever look at you and think maybe she has some shady past, you know, and, and by being courageous and doing that, that self-acceptance I think just exudes out to other people. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that are feeling very hopeful for themselves or their loved ones that they can change too, because change is possible, right? And I want to say thank you for being you because you are amazing and the world is a better place because you are in it. So thank you for sharing your story and stopping by the podcast today. It's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Don't forget Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.